Right. It's Highway 50, loneliest road in America. But I have to say, we took a different road to Ely from, we were coming up from Mammoth Lakes in California, and we thought that was the loneliest road in well, America. <laughs> it couldn't get more lonely because there was nothing on it. So I don't know what this whole Highway 50 loneliest road designation is because you can't get, you know, less lonely than nothing. This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Matt Smith. And I'm Karen Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Today, we're taking you to the great state of Nevada, far away from the glitz and noise of Las Vegas, to the solitude of the state's only national park, Great Basin. This park has it all, unusual geology and history, and fantastic hiking trails and scenery, but without the crowds that you might encounter in other national parks. We'll talk about the incredible diversity of Great Basin, from its underground cave system to the top of Wheeler Peak, and share some of our favorite things to do. Plus, we'll travel to Ely, Nevada, a small historic town located close by where we like to stay when visiting the park, and talk about some unusual things to do and see in that area. All this, plus a couple of history channels thrown in for good measure. Stay tuned for all the fun. You know, Matt, every time I do the research for one of our podcast episodes and I start putting together the outline, you know, I look up a lot of things that I don't know just off the top of my head, and I learn something new every single time. So in this case, when I'm looking up things about Great Basin National Park, I found out that visitation last year in 2022 was only 142,000 people. That's kind of surprising. I was really surprised. Yeah, what would that be? I don't know. I can't do the math. Maybe 300 people a day? No, maybe a few more? Less than 400? Yeah, and it's such a beautiful park. And I was looking at some of the other other least visited national parks in the lower 48, and a couple of them are, for instance, Congaree and Dry Tortugas, Guadalupe Mountains, and Isle Royal. And in my opinion, I think it's one of the best least visited national parks. So are you going to make a trophy for it? It's the best. <laughs> and the trophy's going to say, the best least visited <laughs> National Park. We're, we're going to start giving out awards and traveling around the country and presenting these. This is the, this is the Matt and Karen Smith. What is it again? The best least visited national park. Right. Congratulations. <laughs> Congratulations. You won. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So Great Basin has that to look forward to. They're going to get a trophy from us. <laughs> yeah, they'll get that from us. They'll put it in their trophy case. <laughs> you know, it's such a unique park. So if you haven't been there before, there's Wheeler Peak that towers over the park. And the summit of Wheeler Peak is at more than 13,000 feet. Yeah. You can see it from a long way away. And as you drive into the park, you're in the sagebrush covered foothills, but the foothills are still at 7,000 feet of elevation. So this is a high altitude park. Yeah. And so you have to keep that in mind when you're visiting uh, because at 7,000 feet, you know, it might be 100 degrees in Las Vegas, but it'll be cooler up there. Absolutely. And you know, it's such a diverse park. And we're going to talk about some of the diversity from Lehman Cave, up through the scenic drive up to the top of Wheeler Peak, it goes through a lot of different ecosystems. And that's one of the things that makes this um, place so special. Yeah, I think it's a really cool park. I do too. Yeah. So it's got 77,000 acres. And Matt, since you are the host of the Geology Channel, could you step in for a second and explain what exactly does Great Basin mean? Why do they call it Great Basin? You know, that is a great question in all seriousness, because I didn't know for a long time, kind of that whole area of Nevada, it's it's considered the Great Basin. Of course, this is Great Basin National Park that's right on the eastern edge of this. The basin itself, it's, well, it's essentially a hydrologic region where all the precipitation that comes down in that area, either in the form of rain or snow, and then when it melts, it doesn't go anywhere. It stays in the basin. So it either 
percolates down into the ground or forms in uh, you know lakes or pools, which I think is pretty interesting. It does it doesn't go to the ocean. It is really interesting. I think they could have maybe come up with a better descriptor than great great basin. <laughs> well, it is the it is the best least visited national park in the system. So they've got that going for them. Right. <laughs> maybe they're feeling better about great right now. <laughs> Maybe so. Okay, so where is it located, you ask? We will tell you. It is in eastern central Nevada. That's right. It's about four and a half hours north of Las Vegas. Uh, We've made this drive many times. We went last April because we were going down to the Vegas area to, to do a bunch of outdoor activities and go to destinations around there. And driving through this area, now we were just a few miles west of the park, driving south towards Las Vegas, I think we drove through two or three snowstorms. It was one of the most harrowing drives we've ever done. And again, this is April, but from the second we hit the Nevada state line, and this would be, you know, to the north because we're coming from Seattle, we were in a blizzard. We were in sleet. It was foggy. Couldn't see the road. We spent the night in Ely, Nevada, which we'll talk about a little later on in this episode. But when we woke up the next morning, we expected it to be beautiful. We had plans to go to Cathedral Gorge State Park and do hiking. Gosh, the entire way down to Vegas, it snowed again, sleeted. And it's a kind of a mountainous area. It is. And it goes up and down in elevation I kid you not, there were parts of that drive from Ely to Las Vegas where you could have pulled off the side of the road and had a picnic in the sun and then driven 10 more miles into a blizzard without being able to see the road and thinking you're going to die. And then 45 minutes later, back to the picnic in the sun, (laughs) back to the snowstorm, back to the picnic. So it was a kind of an odd drive. Beautiful in a strange way. Nevada is a beautiful state to drive through, but definitely um, nerve wracking for sure. Now, I think one of the reasons that maybe this is a lesser visited park is because people think it's in the middle of nowhere. And that's not necessarily true for all of you who are visiting Utah. That's right. It's on the edge of nowhere. Okay. But for all of you doing the Utah parks, it's only a little over two hours from Cedar City, Utah, which is a pretty big little town along I-15. We've stayed there before. And only three hours from Zion. So really, you could... Uh, You could add this to a Utah Parks trip if you had the time. Yeah, they could call it the Mighty Six now. Right. (laughs) Yeah, so it's uh, it's a fun park. It would be uh, kind of a shame if you were down there visiting all the Utah parks that if you didn't hop on over and see Great Basin, particularly if you're going in and out of Las Vegas. I mean, it's it's not exactly on the way, but it's not that far out of the way. And plus, you. Get another national park in, and after you listen to what we have to tell you on this episode, you're definitely going to go. Oh, absolutely. You will be making a beeline for one of the best, least visited national parks in the lower 48. I think one of the other reasons that maybe it has less visitation is because people flock to Utah in March and April. You're probably not going to Great Basin to hike in March or April. Well, like we said, it's got some elevation. Uh So, I mean, it's going to feel like winter. It's 7,000, which is where the sagebrush is. Right. So when do you think is the best time to go? Well, we've been several times in September. I thought those are fantastic times to go. Mid to late September, because as, and we'll talk about driving up to Wheeler Peak, you're going up in elevation. Those aspen trees are changing. Oh my gosh. In in mid-September. And so while you think, well, that might sound a little early for seeing the colors, I think that's a fantastic time to go. We've actually been there twice at the end of September, and those aspens have turned to gold. And you know, the thing about the aspen trees, too, is those leaves, not only do they change to a beautiful color, but they kind of, well, they quake, right? Quaking aspens, they they shimmer, they do a little shimmy, they actually move. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's the it's, scientific term. They do a shimmy. Into, into the movement of, of the tree leaves, yeah. But as we said, this is a high elevation park, and you know, it can start snowing around the 1st of October. In fact, 
Currently, right now, the scenic drive is closed because of snow. So you've got to be kind of careful on the timing. September's great, but you don't want to go much later than that unless you are looking for snow activities, which is a different fun thing to do there. Yeah, if that's your plan and you're prepared for it, then I think it's a great park for snow activities. We tried that one time. Mm -hmm. We went in January. Uh, We were going actually driving over to the Utah-Arizona border, and we were going to hike the wave. And we just happened to be going through it in January. And we drove up to the point where the Wheeler Peak Road was closed, but there wasn't really that much snow. I think it was a low snow year, but I could imagine in a good snow year, there's plenty of places to go snowshoeing. Right, or skiing. We had planned to snowshoe up the scenic drive, you know, as far as we could. But yeah, when we started, it was just bare pavement. We didn't even need to put our snowshoes on. And I'm sure at the top of the 12-mile drive, there was probably incredible snow, but we certainly weren't going to you know, be hiking up 12 miles to find it. So that was a little disappointing. But I think probably typically it's a snowy park in the winter, and that would be fun to ski or snowshoe. They also, we're going to talk about the cave tours in a minute. They also offer the cave tours in the winter, I think one a day. Usually doesn't snow inside the caves. It does not. And of course, summer is great to go if you want to hike and camp and enjoy the Alpine lakes. You know, summer is prime time. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about the park. Now, Karen, this area was not made a national park until the 1980s, so there's really not any history to talk about. So, so we'll just get right into the explanation of the park. (laughs) Matt, it's your lucky day because you know what? There is actually a really fascinating history in this park, and it has to do with one of your favorite things, a cave. Mm, Okay, good, because I brought snacks, (laughs) and since I'm not allowed to talk during History Channel, I'm going to eat my snacks. All right. And you tell us all about it. Okay, I will. This History Channel is a little bit different because... As you mentioned, Matt, the park itself wasn't made a national park until the 1980s, but Lehman Cave was declared a national monument back in 1922 by President Warren G. Harding. We don't hear a lot about Warren G. Harding, do we? We don't. No. No, He slipped in there, but He he, he did a good job on this one. And the cave was dedicated in a huge celebration that involved the American Legion, the mayor of Baker, Nevada, and local school children. Baker, Nevada has five people in it. One of them is the mayor. And the children... Are his children. Weren't you supposed to sit back and eat snacks okay, while I'm, I'm going I'm on? <laughs> going back to the snacks. <laughs> okay, thank you. Okay, now back in 1922, this Lehman Caves National Monument was administered by the U.S. Forest Service. The other land that now makes up Great Basin National Park was also managed by the Forest Service. But apparently, the agency had very little interest in managing the cave, and they allowed private operators to do pretty much whatever they wanted. So back then, the official custodian of the caves was Clarence Rhodes, who was a former restaurant owner, who, along with his wife, B, were allowed to keep the cave tour fees for their pay. That's how they got paid. They kept all the money that came in for the tours. The cost of the tour back then was $1. Kids under 12 were free, and groups of 12 or more were $5. And this is really a bargain rate because tours back then often lasted three hours or more. Yeah, a dollar in 1922 was like like $1,000 today. (laughs) You could buy... By a car with a dollar. Oh, back is that then. right? Yeah. Okay, we need to we need to fact check that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So Clarence and B started making some improvements in and around the cave. They replaced the rope ladders with stairways. They excavated the floor to provide more headroom. They put sleeping tents in Lehman's orchard and roads to the cave entrance were improved. So get this, Matt. Their first year they had forty eight visitors. Then they advertised and had pictures taken, and they distributed pamphlets. The second year, they had 287 visitors. The third year, they had 700 visitors. And then finally, the governor of Nevada started talking about it. And in 1924, they had 3,800 visitors. 3,800 bucks in 1924. I know. Yeah. They were buying a lot of cars back then. Yeah. 
So the Rhodes wanted to increase business further, so they began developing one of the rooms of the cave as a meeting place for large groups, and they performed weddings in the cave. Now get this, they had musical musical concerts where instruments were played on the stalactites and stalagmites. I know, I'm chewing. I can't, uh, yeah. I can't comment, but okay. I would. I know you would. <laughs> They had dances and picnics and pageants, and they also offered pack trips to Wheeler Peak. Now, in 1928, the Rhodes built 15 new cabins, one of which still remains near the Lehman Caves Visitor Center today. It's called the Rhodes Cabin. And they also had a log lodge that provided regular Sunday evening concerts for guests and locals. So doesn't that sound just like a rip-roaring time back then? It does. You know, you don't find a lot of women these days named B. I think that's for Beatrice. <laughs> I think it is. Yeah, it's B-E-A. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's a good name. They should bring that back. B. It is very cute. Uh-huh. Very cute name. Okay. But we digress. In 1933, the party ended. There was an executive order, number 6166, signed by President Franklin Roosevelt that transferred control of all national monuments, including Lehman Caves, to the National Park Service. And a man named Otto Nielsen was appointed as the first park ranger in charge in 1934. And interestingly, Matt, he reported to the superintendent of Zion National Park, who was responsible for the monument. So as we said, you know, Zion was about three hours away. So they made that superintendent kind of in charge overall. Yeah, FDR shut this down. Yeah, the, he the shut roads. the party down. He the figured par- out what the ro- what the roads were doing. <laughs> yes, like we're not doing that anymore. <laughs> right, no more, no more instruments playing on the stalactites. No. And over the next decade, now they were cleaning up, doing rehabilitation and repair projects in the cave and on the surface. And guess who was doing this, Matt? Guess who came to the rescue? Franklin Delano Roosevelt. (laughs) Well, he had already come to the rescue, but the team that came in was the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC. So apparently at this time, as you can imagine, the caves were littered with debris, tin cans, lumber, and broken cave formations, all because of the heavy impact that early visitors had on the cave. And they even had what they called a wishing well, which was a small room that was filled with trinkets left by visitors who believed that if they left an item and made a wish, it would come true. One pool alone had 700 objects in it, including coins, a garter belt, and an American flag. What were the roads doing? Where was B? They're just like... (laughs) Letting people throw tin cans on the ground. They were counting their money. Yeah, yeah, they're $3,800. Yes. But now the CCC is hard at work, and in 1936, plans to build a cave entrance tunnel that would eliminate the use of the hazardous natural entrance were declared feasible. I guess the old stairway that led down 60 feet from the ground down into the first room of the cave was a barrier to a lot of people who wanted to see the cave. And even though some objections had been voiced by NPS officials who were worried about destroying the cave's natural beauty, the tunnel was completed in 1939. And in the 1960s, they built the current exit tunnel, which was of similar construction. That's all very fascinating. I know. It it is so, so fascinating, I think. And one more thing that I think is also fascinating is that candles were the standard lighting for many years in Lehman Caves, like they were in a lot of cave parks. And it wasn't until 1939 that funds were made available to bring electricity into the cave. So the first electrically lit cave tour started in April of 1941. However, the complicated system was hard to maintain, and it had frequent failures. So it wasn't actually until 1949, when they had better, more reliable generators installed, that they had continuous cave lighting down there for the tours. Okay, what year are we on now? Are we? (laughs) All right, I'm wrapping it up. (laughs) So, the movement to make Lehman Caves and the surrounding area into a national park began as early as the 1920s, but it wasn't until the mid 1980s that the concept became a reality. In the Great Basin National Park Act of 1986, 
Lehman Caves National Monument was formally abolished and all lands incorporated into the nation's newest national park. So who would have that been? That that was probably Ronald Reagan. Nineteen eighty six. Yeah, that'd be Reagan. Yeah. Yeah. He came into office in eighty. Lasted for eight years. Yeah. So There you go. There you go. Thanks to Ronald Reagan. Yeah, never did tell us who Lehman was, though. I mean Oh Lehman? He was Absalom Lehman, who's credited for being the first white person to discover the cave. The discovery was published in 1885 by the White Pine Reflex, which was a local newspaper out of Ely, Nevada. Yeah, we still get the White Pine Reflex, don't we? (laughs) We have it delivered to our house. I feel like I have White Pine Reflex every night. (laughs) Anyway, this is what they wrote. This is so interesting. I'll just read this little thing that they published. Absalom Lehman of Snake Valley reports that he and others have struck a cave of wondrous beauty on his ranch near Jeff Davis Peak. Stalactites of extraordinary size hang from its roof, and stalagmites, equally large, rear their heads from the floor. The cave was explored for about 200 feet when the points of the stalactites and stalagmites come so close together as to offer a bar to further progress. They will again explore the cave armed with sledgehammers and break their way into what appears to be another chamber. Yeah, I'm so glad that I asked. <laughs> I, I have no more questions. Are you sure? Yep. Because I could keep going. <laughs> All right. So we are going to talk about the developed section of Great Basin National Park because there are a lot of dirt roads that will take you back into other areas to explore. But for the sake of time, we're going to talk about the the main section that everybody goes to. Well, part of the developed areas are a couple of visitor centers. One is right there at the Lehman Cave. So the Lehman Cave Visitor Center. It's located inside the park at the end of the main entrance road. And that visitor center is where all cave tours leave from. And most of the park's programs are offered from the Lehman Cave Visitor Center. Yeah, they have a lot going on there, as most visitor centers do. Exhibit hall, information desk, that kind of thing. Uh, They also have a cafe there, and we've eaten there once or twice. That was actually good food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they also have a Western National Parks Association bookstore. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that carries our books from time to time. And then there's one more visitor center just called the Great Basin Visitor Center, which is located outside of the park just north of the town of Baker. And a lot of visitors stop here first, which is what we did on our original visit to Great Basin. But when we stopped there in 2010, that was our first stop. And so we were stamping our passport books with the park stamp. But there was kind of an issue with that one. There was. This was one of our, um, this was one of our park passport crises. I went to stamp my passport book and the stamp was not the same size as all the others. It was misshapen. It was, well, it was large. (laughs) I know. It wasn't uniform with the other stamps on that same page. It stuck out. It stuck out and that kind of thing really bugs you. But when we went back in January of 2020, we stopped in there for that very reason, and they had fixed it. They had a normal stamp. Yeah, I got a new stamp. Glad that they kind of came back to the fold on that one. But in my collection of stamps for our journey to all the national parks, when we did it all together, that stamp sticks out. I know. It is kind of memorable, though, right? For, I mean, for the, for the that reason. best, least visited <laughs> national park in the system, yes. That's right. All right, so we're going to talk about some things to do in the developed section of the park. And one of the most popular things to do is to do a cave tour of Lehman Cave, which is the longest cave system in Nevada. It's the only cave system in Nevada, Karen. (laughs) I don't think so, Matt. (laughs) You wish. (laughs) And I, I think you're right. I think that is the main attraction. The other areas are beautiful, and going up to Wheeler Peak, and we'll talk about that, is a great drive. But I think people go there for the cave. Well, yes, they do. In the summer months, there are two tours of Lehman Caves offered. There is what's called the Lodge Room and the Grand Palace Tours. And in the winter, there's only one tour offered, and it's the Lodge Room. They're so popular, they regularly sell out, and sometimes weeks in advance. So what you want to do is go to recreation.gov and get your reservations there. 
They're available 30 days in advance. Right. And that's key because I don't think you can just walk up and get a cave tour ticket unless, of course, you're there in the off season. But you know what they have, Matt? For people who aren't going to be able to make it to see the cave or if, you know, going down into what you call a deep, dank basement isn't their thing. What's so cool is that you can watch a virtual cave tour online. There are three parts, like three little movies, and they are visually stunning. They're done in what's called three-dimensional laser imaging in a really high resolution. So it's like you're walking through the cave. It's really, really cool to see. Well, do all the cave parks have that? Because if I would have known that I could have skipped the cave tours and just watched the videos on my phone, I think I might have done that. Yeah, I don't know if they do or not, but it doesn't really matter because it's too late for you anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I hear that more and more (laughs) often all the time. Story of your life. Um, We'll put a link to that on our show notes, though, because everybody should watch. It'd be a really great thing for um, school classes to watch. Also, it brings Lehman Caves to life on our computer screens, and it really has been done so beautifully. Yeah, I wonder if you could do that virtually on your computer, and then you qualify as a junior ranger. Yeah, I don't know. You just, like, you know, hold your hand up and say the pledge, and then they'll send you a junior ranger badge. You could try, Matt. You, you could try. Can you check into that for us? <laughs> hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. All right. But one of the great things, one of the things we love most about Great Basin is that in this park, it's one of the few cave parks that actually has really spectacular things to do above ground as well. Yeah. Like we said before, the Wheeler Peak Scenic Drive, that's a fun thing to do. Um, Now it starts at the park boundary on Nevada Highway 488, and it takes you up, what, it's about 12-mile drive mm-hmm. uh, to the top, or at least to the top of where the road goes. And so you're going to go up in elevation, so it's kind of winding up, and you're, well, you're going to gain 4,000 feet of elevation going up. And Karen, you know, you're going to go through numerous ecological zones. I know. It said on the website that you're going to go through zones that are the equivalent of driving from Baker, Nevada to the frozen Yukon, thousands of miles to the north, just by driving up to the end of the scenic road, which by the way, puts you at about 10,000 feet elevation. So how about that? Did you feel like you were in the frozen Yukon when we were there? Well, not really. No, I didn't. <laughs> Maybe it's because we weren't there no. up there when yeah, there was w- all that snow. It wasn't frozen. <laughs> but huge diversity as you leave the Great Basin Desert and you climb up in elevation. It's just absolutely beautiful to see it change. Apparently, now we haven't seen any wildlife there except for, you know, the sm- very small wildlife. But apparently they have um, mule deer, coyotes, and the little ones like marmots and jackrabbits. Yeah, we saw a jackrabbit the size of a coyote. Remember, oh, we, did? we didn't know if it was a coyote or a jackrabbit. Oh, that was, was right outside the park on our way when yeah, we were leaving. Yeah, it was huge. Yeah. Huge yeah. ears. Now, one thing to note about this um, Wheeler Peak Scenic Drive is that vehicles and trailers over 24 feet in length are not permitted to drive beyond the Upper Lehman Creek Campground, which is at mile marker three. So that's as far as you can go. And during the winter, the scenic road is impassable. They close it to, um, to everyone. But they usually open it back up around Memorial Day. Right, right. Okay, so... Let's talk about some of the hiking trails in the park. At the end of the Wheeler Peak Scenic Road at the Bristlecone parking lot, there's a couple great hikes right there that we'll just mention. There is um, Sky Island Forest is kind of like a little nature walk. It's just 0.4 miles and only about 20 feet of elevation. So if you're not really into hiking, but you, you know, you've been in your car, you drive up and you want to stretch your legs, that's a great one. Yeah, there's also the Alpine Lakes Loop, which is 2.7 miles round trip. It's about 400 feet elevation gain, so it's pretty easy. And then you can also go to the Bristlecone Grove, and that's 
about the same distance, 2.8 miles round trip, and 500 feet elevation. Yes, and this is one of our favorites, and we're going to talk about this trail in a second. But first, I wanted to talk about bristlecone pines for a minute. They're amongst the oldest known living trees in the world. That's right. Yeah, and you can see them in uh, Great Basin National Park, Bryce Canyon, Cedar Breaks, in those National Park Service sites. Now, they actually have, and I didn't know this, Matt, until I was scouring the park map, they have multiple bristlecone groves. This one is the easiest and most accessible, though, so we'll talk about this one. And you know what comes out of this particular grove, Matt? A very sad story about an ancient bristlecone pine named Prometheus. Does there is there an element of history to this, Karen? <laughs> there is, Matt. Okay. I'm just giving you a heads up. This does not have a happy so, ending now. Since so. these trees are thousands of years old, we're not going back that far, are we? No, we're actually only going back to the summer of 1964. A geography graduate student at the University of North Carolina by the name of Donald Curry was doing research on Ice Age glaciology up in the moraines of Wheeler Peak. He was granted permission from the Forest Service to take core samples from bristlecone pine trees growing in a grove beneath Wheeler Peak so he could try to find the age of the glacial features those trees were growing on top of. So Curry was studying the different widths of the rings inside the bristlecone pines, which were believed to be over 4,000 years old, so he could determine patterns of good and bad growing seasons in the past. So I found out that because of their old age, these trees act as climate vaults, and they actually store thousands of years of weather data within their rings. So this particular method of research is valuable when people are studying climate change. I'm a little concerned about the direction this story is going. I know, I know, you should be. What happens next? Well, Curry found a tree in the grove that he believed to be well over 4,000 years old. The tree was known by local mountaineers as Prometheus. Now, again, remember, at this time, this is not a national park. This is Forest Service land. And there are several accounts of how Prometheus met its end. Some say that Curry's increment borer, you know, the, the tool that he used to take core samples, broke off inside the tree. Other people say he didn't know how to core such a large tree or that the borer was too short. Other people say Curry felt he needed a full cross-section to better examine the rings of the tree. So the entire story of what happened to Prometheus is unknown. But the one thing that's for certain is Curry had permission from the Forest Service to have the tree cut down. And then... Counting the rings later revealed that Prometheus contained 4,862 growth rings. And because of the harsh conditions these trees grow in, it's likely that a growth ring didn't form every year. So Prometheus was probably more like 4,900 years old. And at that time, it was the oldest known tree in the world. So I'm guessing cutting it down was not the original plan. I I can't imagine that was the plan, right? No, something went wrong. Yeah, and I've read different takes on the story. What I told you actually comes from the National Park Service site. You know, we'll go with that one. But other accounts I read said that his borer got stuck in the tree and the only way he could get it out was to chop the tree down. Uh, But what happened was that this incident all of a sudden gave these ancient bristlecone pines universal attention, and it ignited the debate about whether the Forest Service was adequately protecting Wheeler Peak and the land surrounding it. I I think we can all agree that they probably weren't. Right. Yeah, that you could have just left the core sample in there. The borer. The borer could have just stayed in there. You would think so. I know. It's so so sad. And now, if you go and visit this grove, the stump of Prometheus is all that remains of the ancient tree. But if you would like to count the rings of Prometheus, there is one of Curry's cross-sections on display at the visitor center. So you can actually see a cross-section and you can count the rings yourself if you've got some time. So if you you, if you want to count the 4,862 rings, you could do that? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Think, do you think anyone does that? I would guess people probably yeah. do. <laughs> uh-huh. 
So anyway, a sad story, and it happened right there in this bristlecone pine grove, which is absolutely beautiful to walk through. They've done a really nice job um, with the trail and with labeling different trees. There are interpretive signs. It's a little bit of a hike to get up there, but it's absolutely worth it. Yeah, it's a little bit strenuous. I remember thinking this is harder than I thought it would be, but once you're up there, it's really cool. One of the things that makes it strenuous is that you're at 10,000 feet. Well, uh, yeah, there's that. But what we like to combine this with is we combine it with the glacier trail. And if you do them both together, because you hit the bristle cones before you go up further to see the glacier, it's about 4.8 miles round trip, about 1,000 feet in elevation gain. And then once you're up there, you can see Wheeler Peak Glacier, which is the only glacier in Nevada. And it has lots of different names. I've looked this up many times. I always thought it was called Rock Glacier. And I have found, I'm not going nuts here. I have found places on the National Park Service website where it says Wheeler Peak Rock Glacier. And it's not rock, you know, lowercase r as a descriptor. It's capital R as a proper noun. So so if you hear <laughs> well, rock glacier, you hear Wheeler Peak Glacier, it's all the same. Right. And there's only one glacier in Nevada. So you, yeah. you are at the right place. And what I also learned is that when you get to the viewpoint of this glacier, it's not very big. But I did find out that you're only seeing a small part of it, that the rest of it is underneath the rock. So you're only seeing a little bit of a bigger glacier. But it is cool to see. You wouldn't think, uh, we didn't think before we went there for the first time, the state of Nevada had a glacier, but they do. They do. Now, one more hike we want to mention, if you are up for a big strenuous hike, you can do the Wheeler Peak hike. It's about 8.6 miles round trip, 3,100 feet of elevation gain. So, you know, that's over what, 4.3 miles up. So that's pretty steep. And yeah, you're, and you're starting at like 10,000 feet. Right. Right. So yeah, yeah, we're not doing that. No, we have not done that and probably won't. This one begins at the Summit Trail parking area. We actually did when we were there in September the last time. The trees right there were so beautiful that we actually did hike about a mile of that trail just because we were walking through those golden aspens and it was really pretty. So you could hike a little part of it. I mean, you don't necessarily. You could, and that first part w was not steep at all. No, it was so, beautiful for us. So it gets really steep later, I guess. Right. Yeah. The other thing we haven't done that I want to do is explore some of the more remote sections of the park that have hiking trails also. So there is the Baker Creek area, that's a gravel road, Strawberry Creek area, another gravel road, Snake Creek area, gravel road, and Lexington Creek, which is not only a gravel road, but you need a high clearance vehicle. Yeah, so there's plenty of places for us to go still Oh yes. when we go back to the park. Yeah. Absolutely. If you really want to explore the park and you want to camp and things, then you're, you're going to need some more time than just one day. All right, let's talk about places to stay if you're going to visit this park. Uh, we stayed in the little town of Baker, Nevada. Now, I underestimated their population. I said they had five people, but they actually have a population of 36. They do, yeah. 36 people. Currently, the little motel that we stayed in, currently it's called Stargazer Inn. When we stayed there in 2010, it had a different name, but it's under new ownership called Stargazer. We actually thought that was a darling place to stay, and the location is fantastic, literally right outside the park. Yeah, you were going to steal their cat, remember? Oh, I know. <laughs> you, <laughs> you were going to take their cat. They had a lovely cat that was roaming around that kept coming to sit on my lap. I know I wanted that cat. Yeah, but but we didn't, We folks. did not. We, we did, did not, not take, take the, the cat. cat. We did not. Because that would be wrong. Right, right. All right, you could also stay in Ely, Nevada. I've, I called it for the, like, the first 10 years Eli. Me too. I, I don't know where Eli Nevada is, but it's Ely. It has a population of about 4,000. You know, we have now, over the years, stayed in Ely quite a few times, maybe seven or eight times. And every time we stay, we learn more about the town. It's, it's actually a pretty interesting little town. It's really fascinating. Now, it's about an hour drive from the park-ish. Yeah, about. And it would be to the west. Right. So let's talk about Ely. It was originally founded as a stagecoach station along the Pony Express and Central Overland Route 
in 1860, and the town itself was established in 1868 as a gold mining camp and probably named for John Ely, who was a mining promoter. And then in 1907, the community expanded after copper was discovered and they had a large-scale copper mining operation. And one of the things you can do in town, which we did for the very first time uh, on a recent trip, is... You can visit the Nevada Northern Railway Little Museum. It's a living museum. And they have trains that that you can go on excursions. So it's a working little train station, but it's also a museum. Right. So you can take a train ride if you would like to. And it has such an interesting history, as all railways do. Since 1906... The Northern Nevada Railway has been a logistics hub. It was built primarily to reach a major copper producing area in White Pine County. But this railway, which was constructed in 1905 and 1906, extended northward about 140 miles from Ely to other connections within the Western Pacific Railroad. However, when the mines closed in May of 1978 because of declining ore reserves and low copper prices, the ore train stopped running, the smelter closed in 1983, and at that point, the Nevada Northern suspended all operations immediately. But then with a series of donations starting in 1986, a nonprofit organization came in and now operates the property as this railway museum, and again, offers uh, train rides and a living museum. And that was so cool, because I thought when we went in and we bought tickets to see the museum, I thought it was going to be a typical museum, but it wasn't. No, we were looking for the building. Where where do you go in? You go in the front door and there's a museum and you look around, but that's not how this museum works. What I thought was most fascinating is there are several buildings that you can go in, one of which is the machine shop. And this is a real machine shop. There are trains in there that they're working on. I know. And there are big lathes and tools laying around. They tell you not to touch anything, but, you know. You were touching stuff. (laughs) Yeah. It was really cool. We were geeking out over it because it's so much history in there. And there were... I mean, there was train machinery. Train parts. Train parts everywhere. This this machine shop was huge. And then we got to go into the blacksmith shop. And they let you just wander wherever you want to go by yourself. There, right. This wasn't part of a tour. We just wandered. They're open pits. Oh, they you were warning to, us about open pits. have to watch pits. for the open pits. <laughs> uh, we did not fall into any of the open pits. Uh, yeah, but you just wander around. Yeah, if you are a train geek, you've got to go see this museum because it's so authentic and you really get to see and feel a sense of the history. There were all kinds of other outbuildings that were not open to people. You could go by and look in the windows and see, but a beautiful little spot there. In fact, in 2006, it was designated the East Ely Yard National Historic Landmark by the Department of the Interior, and this was in order to recognize the railroad's contribution to the preservation of -of turn-of-the-century steam railroading. So a very cool thing to do right there in Ely. Yeah, go to the machine shop, but don't don't touch anything. (laughs) Don't fall into any open pits. But it is cool to see. Very cool. Now, if you're going to be spending the night in Ely, we always like to stay at the La Quinta Inn and Suites. We think that's a pretty good place to stay. And we like to have dinner at Rack's Bar and Grill. Yeah, we sit right there at the bar with the locals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and get to know them. Listen in on their conversations. (laughs) Right. Yeah, not by having conversations with them, just listening in. Just eavesdropping. Yeah. And another thing that's really cool that's close to Ely, it's not in Ely, but we've driven by the sign for the turnoff for this probably a dozen times, and we've never stopped until this past trip. And that is the Ward Charcoal Ovens State Historic Park. Yeah, we finally ran out of other stuff to do. <laughs> it was like, let's go to the charcoal ovens. <laughs> it doesn't sound very exciting, I have to say. It's located off of the highway that runs between Great Basin National Park and Ely. But what's cool about it is the park features six beehive-shaped charcoal ovens that were used from 1876 through 1879. 
Yeah, and when you go to see these things, they look like they're 10 years old. It is pretty amazing. Yeah, they they built these things because they needed to create charcoal. And the reason they needed charcoal back then is uh, they used the charcoal. Charcoal is more efficient and burns hotter in a, in a fire. And they needed that kind of heat intensity to smelt silver or in the area. So they built these ovens. It's cool because the ovens were built by craftsmen. They were Swiss-Italian charcoal workers. They were called carbonari. And they had this design that was a replacement for the open pit system that originated in Italy. So they built these out of stone. Well, you you might think it's stone, but it's actually quartz latite welded tough is what it is, Karen. (laughs) Layman's term is volcanic rock. Oh, okay. Thank you for that. Because it looks like stone. And quite frankly, the stone looks brand new. That's the thing about these is what what are we talking? 150 years old? Yeah. Welded tough weathers pretty well. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, I don't know, maybe this volcanic rock has more insulating capacity. But if you have the time and you're in the area, go back there. You don't have to spend a whole lot of time at the charcoal ovens. They're cool to see. These beehive huts are 30 feet high, 27 feet in diameter at the base. The walls are 20 inches thick. And you can go inside them if you want to and look around inside. Very, very cool. And I guess when the mining operation ended... These ovens were used to shelter travelers. And I was thinking, what a cool place that would be to stay. Yeah, I could see that because Uh it's big open area. So they're beehive shaped. So they're domed and at the very top, there's an opening. Yeah, you you could set up shop in there. I know, that would be such a cool place to stay. And apparently these beehive huts also were used as a hideout for stagecoach bandits back when the stagecoaches were coming through here. So if you're a stagecoach bandit, (laughs) you could find the charcoal ovens close by and hide out there. That's right. It seems that would only work one time, right? I mean, once they find the bandits in the charcoal ovens, do you think they're not going to look every time for the bandits there? And these things, it's not like they're hidden. Right, right. They're they're noticeable. Sheriff, they're in the charcoal ovens again. (laughs) Yeah, I I think that uh, they would catch on to that pretty quick. Yeah, it's a little bit obvious of a hiding spot. Anyway, check that out. I guess we did see a campground that was back there. And also, when you're done looking at the beehive huts, you can also picnic, hike, and fish, I guess. Also, you know what else we should mention, Karen, is another thing you can do in Nevada is drive the loneliest road in America, right across the state, essentially from Reno or Carson City, right across the state, goes east and west. Right. It's Highway 50, loneliest road in America. But I have to say, we took a different road to Ely from, we were coming up from Mammoth Lakes in California, and we thought that was the loneliest road in America. (laughs) it couldn't get more lonely because there was nothing on it. So I don't know what this whole... Highway 50 loneliest road <laughs> designation is because you can't get, you know, less lonely than nothing. Although we love driving through Nevada because there's hardly any traffic, wide open spaces. You can see the mountains in the distance. It really is. I know Montana has the nickname Big Sky Country, but Nevada is also Big Sky Country. Yeah. Much less road rage. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. You yes, don't see definitely. anyone for a couple hours. Yeah. Right. <laughs> All right, Karen, so how many days would you recommend people spend in Great Basin National Park? Well, you know, you could see a lot in one day in that main developed area. So in one day, you could do a cave tour. You could drive up the scenic drive. You could do the bristlecone glacier hike that would easily fit in one day. I think we've said before, though, if you want to explore some of those other undeveloped sections of the park, you're going to want a couple more days. Right. Yeah. I mean, if it's going to be your only visit, you think, to this park ever, then maybe a couple days so you can do some of those other undeveloped sections of the park. You know, Great Basin National Park is one of the best dark sky viewing parks. And if you're interested, every year they have the annual Astronomy Festival. Next year in 2024, it will be the 15th annual Astronomy Festival, and it's planned for the weekend of September 5th through the 7th. 
So it sounds like a ton of fun. I guess these festivals have guest speakers. They have ranger programs. Of course, they have, you know, telescopes out. They have art projects. So they have a lot going on. Yeah, and it's scheduled right after a new moon. So it should be the darkest sky of the month. So that that would be cool. We have seen many dark sky areas on our travels, and when you truly have a dark sky area, it's pretty amazing in the middle of the night. On our first visit to Great Basin in 2010, it was pretty early in our two-year parks journey. We hadn't been to many parks yet, and we stayed in Baker, Nevada, and I remember in the evening... Yeah, there's not much to do at night in Baker, Nevada. Yeah, well, there's yeah, the, the, the 26 people, right. most, most of them have, have jobs at night. so that There are no TVs, no internet. So we decided to drive back into the park. So we drove in. Of course, nobody's there. We pulled off the side of the road. It was a beautiful night. We sat out on the hood of of our car, and we, we laid back, and we looked up, and I think that this, honestly, at my advanced age, I think it was the first time I ever really, really saw the Milky Way because we just, we weren't outdoorsy people, you know, until kind of that point. And we just hadn't spent much time in these dark sky places. And we laid back and looked up at the Milky Way. And it was truly one of the most magical things that I've ever seen. I love seeing the Milky Way and some of these remote outdoor destinations give you a great view of it. And I'm glad at your advanced age you were (laughs) able to finally see that. I know. You certainly wouldn't want to come to the end of your life without having seen one of these incredible dark sky parks. So yeah, Great Basin has a lot going for it from underground caves to the top of Wheeler Peak, and really so much diversity in between. That's right. And let's not forget, it's the best, least visited national park. (laughs) Okay, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate you all tuning in and hanging out with us. And Matt, by the way, I fact-checked your statement about how much a dollar was worth back in 1922. So one dollar was equivalent in purchasing power to about eighteen dollars and twenty-eight cents today. So they wouldn't have been able to buy a car with that, because back then a Chevy in around nineteen twenty cost five hundred and twenty-five dollars. Okay. So anything else you want to throw out there? <laughs> a lot of times I'm just spitballing over here. I know you are. Yeah. Honey. I know you are. At this point, we've recorded almost one hundred and forty Dear Bob and Sue podcast episodes. And we've covered a lot of places. If you have suggestions for future episodes, something or some place you'd like us to talk about, please email that to us at mattandkarensmith at gmail.com. And in the meantime, we've started working on our Halloween episode, which is always my favorite episode of the year. Mine too. It's going to be the best, least listened to episode of the entire (laughs) year. Thanks for that. Thanks a lot.